Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. Open a basic biology textbook published decades ago, or one published recently, and both will define the two major categories of cells in the same way. Eukaryotes have membrane-bound compartments called organelles, including a nucleus where they store their genetic information, while prokaryotes don't. But it turns out that these simple bacteria may be more complex than we originally thought. As the evolutionary story is usually told, first came the prokaryotes. These are the archaea and bacteria, which are simple bags of enzymes without an intricate structure. Then, more than one and a half billion years ago, eukaryotes evolved. This marked the advent of unprecedented cellular complexity. It permanently transformed life on Earth, allowing for the rise of animals, plants, fungi, and protists. The eukaryotes represented a substantial departure from their predecessors, and the transition from an all-prokaryote world to one that contained eukaryotes is often described as abrupt and explosive. But this version of events ignores one key fact. For the past few decades, researchers have been quietly uncovering many complex structures within prokaryotes, including membrane-bound organelles, Eukaryotes have a suite of organelles in common, but different types of prokaryotes have their own specialized compartments. One kind of bacterial organelle is essentially a little magnet wrapped in a lipid package. Another hosts a series of reactions crucial for energy metabolism. Still, others serve as small storage units for nutrients. And that list is only growing as scientists discover more and more compartments within supposedly simple bacterial cells. John First is a microbiologist at the University of Queensland in Australia who studies these sorts of things. Bacteria are a lot more complex, in other words, and they have a lot more similarities in their biology to eukaryotes than people have assumed in the past. The very existence of organelles in these bacteria, along with intriguing parallels to the more familiar ones that characterize eukaryotes, has prompted scientists to revise how they think about the evolution of cellular complexity. And they're finding new ways to probe the basic principles that underlie it. Scientists have known that bacterial cells have compartments that carry out specific functions since the 1800s, and they've studied eukaryotic organelles in great detail for many decades. But it's only recently become possible to do so in prokaryotes. Bacteria are tiny, orders of magnitude smaller than typical eukaryotic cells, and sometimes even smaller than eukaryotes' organelles. That made it difficult to isolate and analyze bacterial compartments to get a sense of what they were and what they were doing. Archaea have been studied even less than bacteria. Better imaging techniques eventually started to make research easier. Among the best studied of the bacterial organelles are the magnetosomes. These are round structures that insert magnetic particles into their lipid bilayer membranes. The organelles allow aquatic magnetotactic bacteria to navigate vertically along the Earth's magnetic fields toward the low oxygen depths in which they thrive. 
microbiologist Arash Komeli of the University of California, Berkeley, and his colleagues have been studying this. They've been identifying the genes and proteins involved in how magnetosomes are built, maintained, and later divided among cellular offspring. Komele says on a superficial level, a lot of activities and even the way they look are similar to how eukaryotic cells build organelles. At the very least, their function parallels the ability of some animals to detect magnetic fields. And in a paper published last spring, researchers reported that one species of protist achieved this through a symbiotic relationship with magnetotactic bacteria. Scientists have stumbled on a plethora of other bizarre bacterial compartments. True organelles have to be lipid-bound structures completely separated from the cell membrane. So many of these new finds might not be considered organelles by the strictest definitions, but some of them do fit the bill. Take a group of oval-shaped aquatic bacteria known as planktomycetes. Some species of planktomycetes contain a membrane-bound organelle called an anamoxisome, which sequesters a chemical reaction that produces nitrogen along with toxic intermediaries. Anamoxisomes act like energy factories for the bacteria, much like mitochondria do in eukaryotes. But anamoxisomes don't seem to be remnants of symbionts as mitochondria are. Another type of planktomycete has been a source of controversy for years. A couple of decades ago, two-dimensional imaging by Furst and others seemed to indicate that the DNA of the bacterium Gemata obscura globus was surrounded by a membrane. This instantly raised comparisons to the eukaryotic nucleus. Those results have been called into question. Imaging seems to indicate that the compartment isn't entirely closed. That means it doesn't satisfy the definition of an organelle. But experts remain excited about these bacteria. They have the most complex internal membrane systems seen in prokaryotes to date. And they contain proteins that structurally resemble those that shape and maintain eukaryotic membranes. They also seem capable of processes that were thought to be unique to eukaryotes, such as digesting nutrients inside their cells and synthesizing molecules called sterols. Damian Devos is a microbiologist at the Andalusian Center for Developmental Biology in Spain. He studies planktomycetes. The problem is that we basically don't know anything about it. We don't know what it does. We mostly don't know how it is formed. The only thing we know so far is that there are some proteins that structurally look like the eukaryotic one that are involved in its maintenance, but even that is very limited. It's only one protein, and we know that there must be many, many more. We still have a very, very limited view on what it does and how it does it and what are the molecules involved in doing it. Bacteria also seem to have a wide variety of enclosed structures that are bound not by a lipid membrane, but by a protein coat. Take carboxysomes, which evolved in bacteria twice, independently, to fix carbon. They, and smaller self-assembling nanocompartments, have a polyhedral structure that looks like a viral capsid, the protein shell that encloses viral genomic material. The catalog keeps getting longer. Komele and his colleagues recently discovered a new lipid-bound organelle that accumulates iron. They've dubbed it the ferrosome. 
Bacteria seem to have all kinds of organelles, with more waiting to be discovered. Scientists are now starting to explore what that means in the context of eukaryotic evolution. They hope either to establish direct evolutionary relationships among the growing list of structures or to pinpoint factors that are unique and necessary for compartmentalization and complexity. Microbiologist John First says questions about how eukaryotes evolved tend to revolve around the order in which various cellular innovations emerged. The question is, I suppose, how much of the features of eukaryotes actually pre-existed before eukaryotes were identified as complex cells. How many features actually are ancient and existed in archaea and bacteria before the the evolution of the first eukaryote. Two major milestones defined the origin of eukaryotes. One keeps with the true kernel meaning of their name. It was the appearance of the nucleus as a container for their DNA. The other was the formation of mitochondria, which are thought to have once been free-living bacteria that were engulfed by an ancestor of the archaea. Experts haven't been able to agree about the most likely order and relative importance of these events, Some think gaining mitochondria was the essential change that set off eukaryotic evolution. Others theorize that eukaryotic evolution was well underway and that an intricate membrane apparatus was already present and helped to enable the uptake of the mitochondrial precursors. No one knows for sure whether the structures seen in bacteria represent primitive intermediate steps in the evolution of eukaryotic organelles. Or are they separate innovations that evolved independently of those eukaryotes? It's possible that the answer varies with each organelle. But even if the bacterial and eukaryotic organelles did evolve completely independently, the prokaryotic structures may be useful for understanding the eukaryotic ones. This possibility was highlighted in spring of last year. That's when a pair of researchers suggested that the nucleus was a much later addition than had generally been believed. Michael Rout is a cell biologist at Rockefeller University and one of the paper's co-authors. Here's what he and his colleagues theorize. The word eukaryote means basically with nucleus. What we're proposing is, in fact, for much of eukaryotic evolution, the nucleus as we know it today didn't exist. And in fact, what predates It was the internal membrane systems. Rout and his colleague Mark Field at the University of Dundee in the UK looked at the nuclear pore complex, the gateway between the nucleus and the cytoplasm. Rout says they noticed that it consisted of a blend of two protein types that are each found separately in other membrane structures. What this implies is that the specialization emerged before for the nuclear pore complex as we know it, which indicates that the endomembrane system was already diverging and specializing before the nucleus as we know it came about. The acquisition of mitochondria would have occurred at the same time. It would have all added up to a slow, stepwise progression from the archaea to the last eukaryotic common ancestor. During this process, many intermediate eukaryotes would have lacked a nucleus and other complex features. 
Joel Dax is an evolutionary cell biologist at the University of Alberta who didn't participate in the study, but is familiar with it. I think their point is, if you say what defines a eukaryote, and the answer is the nucleus, the eukaryotic cell or the eukaryotic lineage may in fact have been well on its way to being a separate entity before what we would consider to be the recognizable feature of a nucleus came about that that recognizable nucleus came about quite a bit later. And Anthony Poole, a biologist at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, says that has implications. If you look at how other parts of biology interpret this kind of data, if you have a bunch of features that are expected in a particular group, and you only found in a particular group, and then you find a new lineage that has those features, or some of those features, we define evolutionary groups based on having what we call shared derived characters. That means that they all inherited them from some common ancestor. Poole says the recent studies imply that the ancestors of modern eukaryotes may have had simple internal membrane structures that are not too far removed from the simple structures in prokaryotes. He says that raises the question as to whether any of the prokaryotic structures have some functional similarities to the early stages of eukaryote evolution. How do we deal with these intriguing prokaryotes that look like they're, you know, maybe a bit eukaryote-like? If prokaryotes build and maintain these structures differently than eukaryotes do, then scientists can more confidently determine how and why compartmentalization might happen. Here's evolutionary cell biologist Joel Dax again. Convergent evolution of organelles is very, very helpful in terms of understanding big principles, in terms of understanding drives, and in terms of bringing eukaryogenesis out of the realm of extraordinary one-off circumstances and into the realm of a really great scientific question that can be tractably addressed. When compartmentalization was thought of as a singular feature of eukaryotes, experts were often forced to speculate about how it came about, what the biophysical constraints were, and what selective advantages it might have. Biologist Anthony Poole. That's where I think these prokaryotes become really interesting, because if they show some features that are even mildly similar to what we see in eukaryotes, then it allows us to broaden the questions out and attack them from a different angle, which is saying under what conditions might compartmentation provide some benefit? Or we can ask, is it just the case that there's no benefit whatsoever and that we're just seeing this as something that it doesn't hurt the organism, so it sometimes appears and persists? You know, we actually don't know enough about, for example, genetic compartmentation to be sure that in the case of the eukaryote nucleus, it was driven by some selective advantage. Joel Dax says the appearance of compartments is useful when thinking about the origin of eukaryotes. Just keeping things apart, whether that's to isolate or simplify metabolism or separate potentially chemically reactive species or produce a gradient or sequester resources. For whatever reason, compartmentalization is useful to do. It suggests that there are multiple ways to do this and that there's a strong evolutionary advantage in doing so. That certainly seems to have been the case with energy production. Laura van Nieftrich, a microbial cell biologist at Radboud University in the Netherlands, knows this. 
She studies anamoxisomes. Van Nieftrich says the independent evolution of anamoxisomes in some kinds of bacteria and mitochondria in eukaryotes shows that the compartmentalization of energy metabolism is beneficial to the cell. You see a trend in both prokaryotes and eukaryotes to compartmentalize certain traits or certain functions in order to better control it. Anthony Poole wants to see if this trend extends to the compartmentalization of genomic information. We don't really know why or whether compartmentation of genetic material is a good idea or if it's necessary under certain circumstances. If we restrict ourselves to the question of what happened in eukaryotes, we're sort of asking for a historical answer. If we're broadening out the question to say, well, we see things that look like that elsewhere in biology, we can ask a general question. So under what conditions might some sort of compartmentation of genetic material be perhaps advantageous? Are there conditions and are they always the same condition or are they different conditions? Poole thinks researchers can start to outline drivers of compartmentalization and those conditions that might give rise to it. At the very least, there appear to be certain biophysical constraints. For instance, a specific kind of protein fusion seems to be required to manipulate membranes. This work not only suggests that compartmentalization is more prevalent among the various branches of the tree of life than people thought, it also indicates that this kind of complexity was not the critical innovation needed to trigger eukaryotic evolution. Rather, eukaryotic characteristics likely emerged as part of a long, gradual trend, just as cell biologist Michael Rout's work on the nuclear pore complex demonstrated. Microbiologist Damian Devos says there are generally two types of evolutionary advancements possible. Big jump or stepwise transition. So some people have proposed that eukaryotes have appeared suddenly. Others propose that it's on the opposite, it's gradual evolution of the system. All the presence of those compartments in some bacteria are more in favor of the later stepwise. In fact, what they are doing is showing us that stepwise evolution is possible. Some researchers are taking a different route. Kate Adamala, a synthetic biologist at the University of Minnesota, and her colleagues are building synthetic cells with some basic internal organization. I can tell you a lot of things that don't give rise to organelles. So far, we have a lot of negative results. It's experimentally very challenging system because you're working with a system that's very fragile, doesn't have any robustness in it. It's not like modern cells that are robust and just grow. Other researchers are pursuing similar projects, including attempting to make cells that consist only of protein components. Arash Komeli and his colleagues are hoping to use their research on magnetosomes and other bacterial organelles to figure out how to manipulate membranes and change their functions for novel applications. This could include identifying tumors and cleaning up toxic materials. But Anthony Vecchiarelli, a molecular biologist at the University of Michigan, says some parts of the field are slow to catch up. I teach introductory microbiology, and my textbook that I'm tasked with using for the class still says bacteria don't have organelles. And it's only recent that we're actually able to assign function to these membrane-bound organelles, and probably one of the reasons why it's been so slow to get this type of information into textbooks and to ultimately 
fix the dogma that membrane-bound organelles are restricted to eukaryotes. That's just not true anymore. Given that all of life is connected, whether in the deep evolutionary past or in current symbiotic relationships, this new understanding of evolutionary history can give us more clues about where we came from. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Jordana Sapelowicz's full article, Bacterial Complexity Revises Ideas About Which Came First, on our website, quantamagazine.org. You can also read more about science and the origins of life's complexity in the Quanta book, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press. Available now wherever you buy books. 